Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Hello and welcome to the Nutrition Diva podcast. I'm your host, Monica Reinagel. And whether you are shopping for groceries these days in your usual store, depending on delivery services, or ordering from online retailers, you may have run into some difficulty getting various foods. My guest on today's podcast is Dr. Garrett Grady Lovelace. She's an associate professor in the School of International Service at American University. And her work focuses on global environmental and agricultural policy and the domestic and global impacts of U.S. farm policies. Dr. Grady Lovelace joins me today to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on food production and distribution and how this pandemic is affecting the farmers, the farm laborers, as well as the consumers who are at the end of the food supply chain. Garrett, thank you so much for joining me today to help us understand a little bit more about how this global pandemic that we are all living through together is affecting food supply and distribution chains. I know we have a lot of questions. We're so grateful for you to take some time to be with us today. Thanks, Monica. It's really an honor to be here. So I think all of us, as we are trying to get groceries for our families, we're seeing shortages of certain foods, whether we're shopping in grocery stores or even trying to place orders online, sometimes the shortages don't even completely seem to make sense. And so I'd love to talk with you a little bit about where things are breaking down. There's so many steps between the field or the farm and our tables. And I think it would be helpful to understand you know, where the choke points are that may be resulting in these shortages. For example, how much of um, these shortages have to do with people just panic buying or hoarding foods in, for fear that supplies may be more limited in the future? Do you have a sense of that? I would say that's not the main driver of the supply chain disruptions. There was little spikes in certain purchases when the lockdowns first started going about a month and a half ago, but really the major disruptions are that so much of the supply chain was going toward restaurants and toward school systems, toward cruise lines, toward hotels, toward entertainment facilities. The sports and athletic industry is a huge purchaser of food. And so there's a lot of kind of industrial major food purchasing that got wiped out within the span of about a week once the lockdown started happening. So all of a sudden you had all of these farmers and producers who usually were selling bulk items that would then get processed on site and were kind of geared toward bulk purchases by restaurants, uh, not having that outlet. And the, the grocery store outlet is much different. So mm -hmm. consumers at the grocery store like very small uh, portions. And so there was a lack of processing facility that was a huge choke point in the, the larger supply chains. So obviously there would be some difficulty retooling that whole supply chain away from those big bulk wholesale channels into the different ways that we need to process and distribute food into retail channels. Are we starting to catch up? Has industry been able to 
pivot in a way that is now redirecting that food into the retail channel? Uh, good question. So there's been a lot of entrepreneurial emergency spirit, and many producers are trying to navigate how to sell online and how to ramp up their digital marketing skills and try to meet demand in households and so decentralize the distribution quite radically. So there are a few producers who have been able to, to you know, do that learning curve, that rapid learning curve. However, the vast majority have not. So this is really a crisis for producers right now. Already farming takes so much energy and so much skill and so much time that to suddenly learn a new skill, which is online marketing and kind of distribution to CSAs, it's, it's hard to manage that skill, learning that skill and then the logistics of that on top of the fact that just it takes labor to move food and then protective gear and the social distancing requirements of the pandemic. I would say on the whole, the, the, we've seen how not unadaptive the food system is. Mm. So there's been a need for a rapid adaptation and a few producers have been able to, to, to do that. But as a whole, there's really been more kind of chokeholds or bottlenecks really in, in the food system. This will unfold into a radically decentralized supply chain. It will have to, but it's been an awkward few weeks to say the least. Absolutely. And it is interesting to think about how our food distribution systems will be forever altered by this, that this won't perhaps be just a temporary adjustment, but there could be, uh, we may always look at food distribution a little bit differently as a result. Yes, I would say one of the major lessons of this as on a on a larger level is that the COVID pandemic has laid bare the myriad vulnerabilities and inequities of the US food and agricultural system and made them more acute. And so one example of this, of course, is the very long and concentrated food supply chain. It's kind of a food from nowhere, you know, food model where the producer and the consumer have little knowledge of each other. The consumer doesn't know where the food is grown, when the food was grown, how long. So the supply chain is really designed to be invisible with the places and the people and the labors behind it unseen, unconsidered, and frankly, unvalued. And the pandemic really lays it bare. Yes, you know, we're hearing a lot, that a lot of food is now being destroyed in the fields, both crops and um, animals being destroyed. And that is obviously devastating to farmers. It's also horrifying for consumers who are worried about being able to get food. How are we addressing these, these issues? What are we doing to make this better in the weeks and months to come? Yes, good question. So certainly farmers are disking hundreds and thousands of acres of fresh produce into the ground, which means plowing and under because they're unable to have it be processed and transported because a lack of labor because of the, the pandemic has really um, radically impacted food workers all along the supply chain and farm workers. Yeah, let's stop and talk just about that for a minute. So, um, so the food is available, but we don't have enough workers to harvest it, perhaps process it, whether that's washing the lettuce or actually slaughtering the animals. And is this because workers are getting sick and there just aren't as many people showing up to those various work points along the way? Or is there some other thing that is affecting worker availability? 
Right. So largely the issue, so there's always been an issue with very unsanitary and exploitative labor conditions for farm workers in the U.S. This goes back many, many decades and generations. It's quite acute right now. And so you have something like 85% of fresh produce being harvested by hand still. So much of agriculture is quite mechanized in terms of corn, you know, with big combines. But in terms of fresh vegetables, a lot of that is still harvested by hands, and it is immigrant, largely a labor force, and largely undocumented. And so these um, people, men, women, even children, have little recourse to legal help if they're being exploited or harassed, or if there's wage theft issues, which those are rampant, or medical. So there's clearly no you know, paid sick leave. And so they're encouraged to keep working. The conditions, people are crammed into trucks, driven to fields, the lodging is cramped. And so the whole materiality of the of the food labor situation is conducive for outbreaks and contagion and quite lethal contagion. So it's it's we're just learning how many farm workers have been infected, how many have died, how many can't work. And so that plus the border, there's been a lot of, you know, building up the border on, from the federal government. And so that's also leading to less people in the fields working. And because um, fresh produce is so time sensitive, mm. if you don't have hands there harvesting, it will rot. And so the farmers really, at that point, also don't know what to do and are losing their markets and um, have to disc it just to make sure they're not spending more labor on their part for a product that's not going to be able to be processed in time to get to markets. Yes, as you say, this really has exposed a lot of the vulnerabilities in the system. And uh, it strikes me that we have sacrificed flexibility in the name of efficiency and that we need to build a food system that includes a little bit of both. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. So let's talk a little bit about some of the other government response to this. There have been some big relief efforts, some big packages, money packages approved by Congress to in part address the needs of farmers and food suppliers. But are some people being left out of this bailout? Is the money getting to the places it needs to go? Good question, Monica. So the USDA has earmarked $23 billion in agricultural assistance but there's so little oversight to where that money is going. As it turns out, a lot of that is going to the largest producers who oftentimes are export-oriented, commodity growers, who are maybe even growing for ethanol. So they're not even growing for local foods. Aid applications are notoriously convoluted, bureaucratic, and inaccessible for many of the small and medium-sized growers. And so thus far, that funding has not gone to support producers who provide for local or regional supply chains. Those farmers growing for farmers markets, for schools, for restaurants, those dedicated to really feeding their communities. Well, what do you see that consumers uh, at the very, very end of this supply chain, what can we do to better support, but also be supported by our food farmers during this crisis? Are there steps that we can take on the individual household level? Yes, thank you. So frankly, just being aware of the supply chain and aware that farmers 
are also suffering and struggling and ranchers and fishers, those in the seafood industry. Medium and small size growers have been experiencing declining farm gate prices for many years. There is some legislation on the books that need to be kind of thought through and supported. There's a Relief for America's Small Farmers Act, which is, supposed, which is hopefully going to be helping small and historically disadvantaged farmers and ranchers to help them um, navigate what could be financial devastation and land loss. The Food Chain Worker Alliance has issued a few directives to help emergency temporary standards OSHA expand for infectious diseases and paid sick leave for the farm, food, and fishery workers. 21.5 million people work in the food system across the U.S. So these are essential workers feeding us, and they're really largely systematically um, undervalued. So there's been a lot on that front. And I would say also there's the Local Ag Marketing Program, LAMP is the acronym, which just got authorized into mandatory funding with the 2018 Farm Bill. It's still radically underfunded, but that is really one of those examples of a small glimmer of hope within the larger ag policy field. And it really is supporting regional direct supply chains where farmers are selling to consumers and schools and restaurants, and it's not getting swallowed up in the kind of massive corporate middleman taking all the profits. Well, I think a glimmer of hope is exactly the right place to leave this conversation for now. Obviously, we're going to be experiencing this and the repercussions of this for a long time to come. But if this is an opportunity for us to strengthen our local um, food chains and the relationships between eaters and growers and, you know, maybe even build a slightly less centralized food system, then that would be sort of a silver lining to this storm cloud. We will include links to some of those resources in our show notes today. Thank you so much for helping us understand uh, what is happening and prepare for what may be coming down the future. Garrett. Great. Thanks, Monica. I appreciate it. We've included links to the resources and various initiatives that Dr. Grady Lovelace mentioned in our show notes for today, which you'll find at quickanddirtytips.com. And if your eating habits have gotten a little sketchy during the shutdown, I also wanted to let you know that I'm hosting a special alone together edition of my 30-day nutrition upgrade program. This is not a diet or a detox. There are no required or forbidden foods. It's just a fun and flexible way of keeping your diet on track no matter what else is going on. We're going to start on May 11th, and there's more information at nutritionovereasy.com slash upgrade. I hope you'll join us. The Nutrition Diva podcast is produced by Nathan Sems, edited by Karen Hertzberg, and our team at Macmillan Audio also includes Emily Miller, Michelle Margulis, Morgan Ratner, and our director, Kathy Doyle. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great week.